Hey, Jay, so what's Fabian Cortez's deal, anyway? Let's see. Bored rich kid turned upstart, turned general purpose jerk. I don't know why I expected something more interesting. He also plays the banjo, if that helps. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 372 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And as we gently led into with our last Excalibur episode, welcome to another miniseries. Boy, the 90s had, like, not just a lot of miniseries, but a lot, a lot of miniseries. I am going to go so far as to say that the 90s had too many miniseries. Too many miniseries. Too many many series even. Well, I liked it. Anyway, this miniseries in particular is a Magneto miniseries, but like, kind of, but not really? No. It's complicated. It's, it's not a Magneto miniseries, it's a Joseph miniseries. Yeah, and of course at this point, uh, Joseph was very clearly intended to be Magneto, or at least intended to seem like Magneto to all of the readers. So, kind of counts, but it does strike me as weird that the first time this central, super important X-Men character has a miniseries in his own name, it's like a very different version of him than we've been used to for decades and decades. In all fairness, it is a miniseries about Magneto, it's just a miniseries about Magneto starring Joseph. Yes, yes, Joseph under Magneto's red, evil, evil, evil shadow. And that's the thing. Like, we've talked about Joseph, who of course is a DH amnesiac version of Magneto, who we will later find out is in fact a clone of Magneto, who was de-aged and amnesiac. Uh, it's one of those situations where to make him seem more good and sympathetic and noble and pure, what we see about Magneto's past, the way Magneto's past is portrayed, is like so so evil. Despite the fact that he's been an ally of the X-Men for a long time, he ran the Xavier School for a long time, and did a pretty good job, at least for some of that. Yeah, since the inception of the second volume of X-Men, Magneto has pretty much been presented as a pure villain, and there's a lack of nuance and a lack of history in there that I really dislike. Yeah, Magneto and Professor Xavier's history certainly plays in very heavily. We just saw a great deal of that in Onslaught. Their history is friends. But Magneto's history on the side of the X-Angels, and I guess uh, Angel, the X-Man, uh, that hasn't really been touched very much. But you know what? Let's do a more general overview of, as he was called in the X-Men arcade game, the Master of Magnet. All right, so he has gone by a lot of different names. Magnus, Eric Lencher, Max Eisenhart, probably some others that I'm not thinking of. He is a man of many names, but mostly Magneto. And as we mentioned, he spent time both as the X-Men's greatest ally and their greatest foe, and most recently, entirely in the latter role. So a while ago, Magneto accumulated a group of really, really dedicated followers called the Acolytes. Notable among them were Fabian Cortez, a scheming sycophant who almost succeeded in arranging for Magneto's death so that he could gain points in Games Master's Upstart game. And Exodus, an immensely powerful true believer, who led the Acolytes after Magneto's mind was wiped by Magneto's oldest friend, Charles Xavier, pushed to the limit by Magneto's last round of villainy. The space station that headquartered Magneto and the Acolytes, Avalon, crashed to Earth, taking with it the vegetative body of Magneto. But not long after that, 
a man named Joseph with Magneto's appearance and powers, but decades younger, surfaced completely amnesiac. It didn't take Joseph long to learn who his past older self probably was. And it didn't take long before the X-Men, and particularly Rogue, took him in to help him redeem himself for the crimes he didn't remember committing. But as we saw in Excalibur last episode, the Acolytes are back in action. So that's happening. And that brings us to Magneto, number one, Return of the Messiah. This is plotted by Peter Milligan, scripted by Jorge Gonzalez, penciled by Kelly Jones, inked by John Beatty, colored by Brad Vancada, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And, um... Before we even start, I I cannot handle the art in this series. The art in this series is just terrible. Which is weird, because as a penciler, Kelly Jones is normally pretty good, so I don't know what's going on here. Yeah, apparently sometime in the late 1990s, Kelly Jones completely forgot how to draw people. And to be fair, comics are collaborative, especially visually, and so it could just be that the alchemy between penciler and inker was, was off? It's hard to say. I mean, it's true that the inks and colors do the pencils and one another no favors. It's... It's it's a case of something being significantly worse than the sum of its parts. Yeah, the men in particular are just so, so muscly and huge, and when people are yelling, which happens a lot because there are many emotions in this comic, they have these giant Steven Tyler and or Mick Jagger mouths. The faces are just, just, um, the faces are a lot. You're going to see those if you click through to the, visu- the visual companion for this episode, and um, you will understand what I mean. And also, at one point, Joseph yells so loudly he turns green with blonde hair. Okay, that's the colorist, not the penciler or the inker. Let's spread out that blame. Well, like I said, those things are also problems. Ah, uh, yes, well, true. Uh, I will say that over the course of the series, I found the art to overall improve. That seems to be most pronounced, the qualities we're describing, at the very beginning of issue number one. I mean, there are problems throughout, but I think they're less of an issue as the series goes. Joseph also inexplicably has Conan bangs. I mean, he looks pretty cool with them. I guess he figured if he was going to be that muscly, he might as well, you know, also go for the corresponding bangs and also presumably the uh, powerful fuse. I guess. It's it's a weird, weird look, and I'm not familiar with the inker and the colorist, so I have I have no idea what their standard repertoire is, but but as Kelly Jones' work goes, this is definitely toward the bottom of the spectrum. As for the comic itself, it's it's alright. Yeah, it's I think yeah, and we'll we'll get back to this more at the end. Um so I guess we should probably just go into what actually happens. Um so it starts with Rogue catching Joseph, now again mysteriously with Conan Bangs, looking through the secret Avalon files in the X-Mansion. Jeez, Mom, knock before you come in! Yeah, basically. Um, And Joseph wants to find the wreckage of Magneto's living quarters in his ongoing quest to piece together what if Magneto may or may not persist in him. This actually reminded me a lot of the beginning of the, not Avengers vs. X-Men, but X-Men vs. Avengers miniseries from the 80s, where Magneto went to the ruins of Asteroid M during the time in which he was very much in his heroic phase. Right. To sort of look through his own history as represented by his mind control helmet. Significantly here, the guy who wants to go and, and dig into that history doesn't actually remember any of it, which that Magneto definitely did. Totally. So, Rogue initially sees this, specifically sees Joseph going into secret files as a betrayal. You know, he's sneaking around, he has bigger hair than she does, this will not stand. Uh, Everybody's got big muscles and big mouths in this series, also big hair, and that I appreciate. Uh, Joseph convinces her otherwise. Don't you understand? 
I can't just go on like this, in blissful ignorance of what has come before. I've been wronged. When Charles Xavier stripped me of my memories, he deprived me of my basic human right of moral choice. Stopping me now from embarking on this journey of self-discovery will only compound that error. But they are not the only people in the room during that conversation. Someone named Amelia Vogt is watching from the shadows. Miles, do you remember who she is? Amelia Vote, yeah, she's kind of a big deal. She was one of the acolytes from very early on. She has the power to kind of turn into an intangible cloud. It's a little ambiguous, as many 90s powers are. This somehow also allows her to teleport. Uh, yeah, she can, like, do a Misty teleport thing. Misty Step, I believe, is the Warlock spell in Dungeons & Dragons that would be the equivalent. Uh, although I think she can do it farther. Anyway, point being... What makes her unique among the Acolytes is her history with the X-Teams. Specifically, she and Charles Xavier were lovers for many years, and she left him when he insisted on founding the X-Men. She thought this was too early, this was pushing conflict onto mutants and humans earlier than it needed to happen, or maybe that conflict wouldn't have happened if Xavier didn't get involved. And of course, she ended up with the Acolytes sort of in the exact opposite direction before too long. What she's up to now, we'll get to later, because for now, Joseph heads to the Andes, where he finds a cult of acolytes worshipping Magneto. And um, I love this detail. They have, they've built a giant metal statue of Magneto's helmet that shoots lasers, and it is very funny. I gotta say, uh, those ring doorbells had some issues in the early revisions. They've been, you know, patched in later hardware revs and with firmware updates and stuff. But no, this is like if churches had the crucifix uh, in the central part just shoot lasers at intruders. Like, you go in there for sanctuary and lasers. Do they not? I don't know. I haven't been in very many churches. And come to think of it, I guess the Ark of the Covenant and Raiders of the Lost Ark, like, kinda did that. Kinda. Now, among these acolytes are a couple of the OGs, um, specifically Scanner and Joanna Cargill. Oh, man. So we saw both of them in the Excalibur issue that we just covered. Scanner's cool. She's sort of uh, naive and uh, easily swayed by her, her allies and superiors. Um, overall, good heart. Joanna Cargill is frenzy. She was a member of the Alliance of Evil. Later on, she's going to join the X-Men. She's going to be a major figure in the Age of X event, and I love her so much. She is fantastic, and it's really good to see her keep appearing and to know that she's going to be a consistent character through here. Yeah, she's not very well developed throughout most of her history, but knowing the development she'll later get, I, I don't know about you, Jay, but it always excites me to see her even appear, like, in the background. Yeah. Now, the Acolytes clearly believe that Joseph is Magneto, and he tries to convince them otherwise entirely unsuccessfully. Especially when the Razors, the elite mutant hunting units of, I believe, Humanity's Last Stand, attack, and he fends them all off with Magneto-like violence. And so Frenzy understands what's clearly going on between his denials but his obvious Magneto-like powers. Right, of course! I understand, my lord. The others must not know yet. Your return must be kept secret for now, until the appropriate time comes for you to resume your rightful place as our leader. So we have shades of the narrator and Tyler Durden from Fight Club here, but mainly I just kept coming back to Life of Brian with this miniseries. I'm not the Messiah. He's the Messiah. Like, it just keeps happening. I'm Magneto and so's my wife. <laughs> Always look on the magnetic side of life. Uh, it, it does get a little comical. Like, I understand this miniseries, what it's trying to do is wrestle with the idea of whether Joseph 
was Magneto, and specifically whether, if he was, Magneto's past crimes define Joseph, and whether it's inevitable that he'll return to them. But it just keeps going back and forth, especially with the Acolyte's opinion of whether Joseph is indeed Magneto, the Messiah. Meanwhile in Antarctica, Exodus, leading the official Avalon 2 set, has Amelia vote captive. And the reason for this is that she is protesting New Avalon. She's discovered that when New Avalon takes flight, it's going to crack the Arctic crust, causing worldwide devastation and killing about a million people. And Exodus thinks that's pretty rad, but Amelia profoundly disagrees. Did Amelia's characterization seem kind of off to you in this miniseries? Yeah, it really did. Yeah, like, she's normally so stoic and proud and bitter, and she just seemed kind of... I don't know, I mean, I realize she's captured and being tortured, and that would really mess with anybody, of course, but she just seems so uh, yielding as compared to her usual portrayal. Like, she doesn't really have that uh, that exterior of cold strength that we're used to seeing. She feels less like a character than a role. I think so, yeah. And that's weird, because like some of the characters, I think, fit very well. Fabian Cortez is written phenomenally in this story. Oh, He's yeah. such a shit, as, yeah, as he should be. Speaking of which, Fabian Cortez intervenes just as Exodus is about to kill Amelia. Now, everyone thought that Fabian was dead. Yeah, Exodus appeared to have killed him for kidnapping Luna. That's um, Pietro Maximoff, Quicksilver, and uh, Crystal's kid at the end of Blood Ties. But apparently, he's still alive. And um, Cortez has, has a long and generally unpleasant history with the Acolytes. Uh, yeah, when he tried to kill Magneto for those upstart points, he killed, like, I think maybe all of the other first generation of Acolytes, like all the Acolytes that are still around are second generation, I believe. He's not a friend. Uh, no, he's, he's no one's friend. If he were an ice cream flavor, he would be pralines and dick. Pralines and mutant supremacist dick. So... Fabian says that he is here to pledge fealty to Exodus and to plead for Amelia's life, but he's very obviously got another game going, because he always does. Still, Amelia decides it's a good idea to tell him about Joseph. It is not a good idea, Amelia. Don't, don't do that. Don't tell Fabian Cortez important things. I kind of feel like it's Fabian Cortez's second mutant power, like Gambit's mutant charm style, to get people to trust him when they definitely 100% know better. Oh, I thought you were going to say just to be really unpleasant. <laughs> that too. Like the reverse of mutant charm. <laughs> mutant ickiness. Yeah. So Fabian, once he knows about Joseph, tracks him down, and he finds Joseph just as Joseph has found the wreckage of Magneto's quarters in, you know, from the original crashed Avalon. And I love the way Fabian handles this. He's like, hey, I need you to come lead the Acolytes and pretend to be Magneto. I know you're not. That's fine. And Joseph's like, no, 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 I can't. I can't go into that evil, dark part of my past. And Fabian's like, well, okay, a million people will die. And they're all your people and they're depending on you. But I get it. Like, it's such a perfect trap for Joseph. There's this group of persecuted mutants that Joseph needs to protect from the razors. There's all these innocent humans that Magneto probably wouldn't have saved, and now Joseph has the opportunity to save. Like, Fabian Cortez is genuinely good at manipulation 
up until the point where he gets caught and everything goes to hell. But, like, until then, he's he's really amazing at it. Like, well done, Fabian, reading Joseph and all of his weaknesses. Yeah. Now, Fabian's plan here is to get Joseph pretending to be Magneto and Exodus to kill each other, at which point he'll step in and take over the Acolytes. But of course, no one but Fabian knows that at this point. And I think the reader can kind of assume it. He doesn't say it explicitly for a while, but like, it's pretty obvious. It's a challenging plan to execute, though. I've played enough Street Fighter to know that double KOs are very rare. That brings us to Magneto number two, Atonement. With, I believe, the same creative team as number one. Uh, yeah, the first three issues have the same creative team, and then we just pull on some more people with uh, number four to assist. So, Joseph is all in on this plan. He is practicing his villain speeches in front of a mirror, wearing the good old red and purple. And I think what really sells me as a reader on Joseph getting Magneto's voice down is that when he speaks in the third person about himself and says Magneto, it's in the Magneto logo font. We've talked about how important that is, and I'm impressed. That said, Joseph is a little less impressed with himself than I am with him, as the narration tells us. Even as Joseph speaks, he trembles, hearing his own voice as if it were someone else's, painfully aware of the countless numbers that Magneto did condemn to a death sentence with this same terrible voice. Dude, we are going to hear so much about Magneto's voice in this miniseries. Speaking of not exactly secondary mutations that feel like they could be. Yeah, Joseph's main selling point is that he can declaim like Magneto. Like, that is the thing that's going to pass him off. That's the thing that makes him believable. And that's going to be the thing throughout the series that makes people go, oh, he really is Magneto. It's not that he looks just like him. It's not that he's got the powers. It's that he sounds real majestic. And, you know, from what we've seen of Magneto over the decades, like, I kind of buy that. Really? Elocution is a secondary power? Uh, specifically intimidating elocution. Do you think magnetism plays into that? Uh, yeah, oh, absolutely. No, it's magnetically boosted elocution. That's why it's so effective. I mean, that's just science right there. Joseph is especially convincing when the other acolytes see that Cortez is still alive and come in to murder him. I mean, they heard about what Fabian Cortez did in the past. But Cortez turns this right around. I love it. He's like, hey, 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 Magneto said that you guys should work with me, and you're not going to question Magneto, are you? He even, like, immediately after convinces Joseph that he has changed his murderous ways, because Joseph is pretty annoyed to hear that uh, Fabian Cortez did, in fact, try to kill Magneto back in the day. So, so, yeah, talking through this, it raises a question for me. Who do you think is more punchable, Fabian Cortez or Fitzroy? Oh, oh, that's a good question. Well, they were both upstarts, right? And upstarts are inherently punchable. Oh, yeah. I mean, Fenris were upstarts. But between the two, mm, I'm going to go ahead... I don't think there's a wrong answer here, but at the moment, my heart tells me that Trevor Fitzroy is more punchable, because at least Cortez, we get the delight of him fucking with other bad guys, and when Fitzroy does that, he usually just kills them, and that's less interesting. So therefore, let's punch him more. I feel like his hair would, like, wave elegantly when you did, too. Oh, that's a plus, yeah. Like, Cortez has a pretty good hair uh, in this series. I think it's less good than it is sometimes. But Fitzroy has amazing hair and stupid armor. It's a good combination. What Cortez also has is the uh, decision to emphasize his point by plucking a nearby bird out of the sky with his bare hand and crushing it with a splurt. Like, dude, that does not make you more trustworthy. That's just 
makes me really concerned. Maybe if your audience is a bunch of large cats. Uh, maybe, or maybe he just took a page from that time that Age of Apocalypse Gambit, uh, in order to emphasize a point, ripped apart the piloting console of the spaceship he was in. Do you remember that? Yeah, this is weirder. This is definitely weirder. There just, like, happens to be a bird, and Cortez just goes, yoink, splurt. And and then the the story just moves on, as if that was a normal thing to happen. It's such a bizarre choice. Right? Like, okay, listeners, if you learn one thing from this episode, it's, if you're gonna make a point, there are so many better ways to emphasize that point than randomly killing a nearby bird. Unless your point, I guess, is about the fragility of, of avian life. Uh, okay, well, most points. Anyway, the uh, point is, the next scene involves Humanity's Last Stand and their razors, which are kind of like big robots, but a new kind of big robots that are piloted by two people, like they're Jaegers from Pacific Rim. Maybe they're in the drift together. I don't know. Anyway, uh— I don't think they're in the drift together. No, probably not. I don't think these these bigoted jerks are capable of the drift. They're not uh, cool enough. Uh, but their leader, Armstrong, is so excited about killing the Acolytes in Magneto. Apparently, he lost his brothers to one of the various military conflicts with Magneto, so this is about revenge. But Simon Trask, alas, will have none of this. He just wants to blow him up with a bunch of missiles. The Trask family, of course, are known for being involved in A, hating mutants, and B, usually but not always, building sentinels. Simon is one of the lesser Trasks. He's the head of Humanity's Last Stand. We saw them in some X-Men annuals. They're a little bit more cult-like than, say, the Friends of Humanity and uh, enjoy robots more, you know, by virtue of being run by a Trask. The Acolytes want to preemptively attack the incoming Razors, and Joseph doesn't know what to say, but Fabian convinces him that they should take the initiative and, and they should attack. But Joseph does, at the end of this very one-sided battle, spare the life of the dying Armstrong. He doesn't want to finish this helpless person off, even though Cortez is like, dude, you gotta kill the enemy or else they're not gonna believe you're Magneto. Yeah, and, and in exchange for his mercy, Armstrong dies roughly as he lived. I love this narration. Spewing an abusive torrent of barely intelligible curses, the dying soldier grudgingly shuffles off the mortal coil. You know, if I ever have to go, that's how I want to go. Do not go gently into that good night, but spewing an abusive torrent of barely intelligible curses, grudgingly shuffling off this mortal coil. Against the dying of the light. Exactly. The the way I imagined that, though, was him just, like, doing that thing where Joseph would say something dramatic and compassionate, and then Armstrong would just go, me, 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 in response to it, and Joseph would get more and more and more annoyed until Armstrong just died. Oh, see, I imagined him just spouting, like, increasingly bizarre and nonsensical profanity. Oh, I kind of like that idea, yeah. Possibly in a complex form of verse. Anyway... There are still missiles being launched by Trask's people at the Acolytes, and so— Nuclear missiles! They're, they're, they're gonna nuke Magneto, because that seems like a real good idea. I, like, th- how casually people use nuclear weapons in comic books still kind of blows my mind. Jeez, what is this, Battlestar Galactica? Uh, but Magneto refreshes the dwindling faith of the Acolytes by— using magnetism to draw all the missiles toward him, open up a giant fissure in the earth, lure the missiles down there, and then slam the fissure shut. So, like, um, if you were planning on, I don't know, having a farm way deep underground, which in the Marvel Universe is probably something you could do, then um, don't don't do it right there, because it's probably pretty radioactive. A mushroom farm. Oh, yeah, that could work. 
you know, Mole Man and his moloids could could have one of those. Be great. What's also great is that in addition to doing this, Joseph, who's all like jazzed up on magnetism and uh, the impressed acolytes around him, then pulls a bunch of molten metal out of the earth and makes this big goddamn spaceship thing out of it that is super stylish so they can travel to their next destination, to New Avalon, to meet up with the other acolytes. Like, Joseph is really picking up all the Magneto tricks here. I only wish that he made like that Magna Car thing from the Silver Age that looked like one of those U-shaped magnets instead of this thing. Oh, man, I know, I know. Well, on New Avalon in the meantime, Exodus has noticed that Cortez is gone, and in order to get the information of where Cortez has gone from his prisoner Amelia Vote, he takes this stinging blob monster that he just happened to find on a passing asteroid and throws it at her chest with a splish sound effect to... Suck out her blood, replace it with poison, inject eggs into her blood, and then have those eggs hatch so that the little alien monsters eat their way through her entire body. Like, god damn, Exodus, that that seems very excessive, and also kind of like a narrative non sequitur. Like, why do we suddenly have a blob monster in this story about identity? Yeah, it's weirdly specific, too. I mean, it is intimidating. I would be intimidated. Yeah, no, that's fair. Well, uh, anyway, she eventually gives in, so he just then squishes the blob monster under his boot, uh, and thus its brief story comes to an end as quickly as it started, which takes us to Magneto number three, Kill Zone. Because this story is not even close to its end. Nope. Again, same creative team as the first two issues, and Joseph decides it's going to be a great idea to head to Armstrong's house. Armstrong, you'll recall, is the guy who died cursing him. Um... To tell Armstrong's wife and kids that their husband and father died heroically and that his last words were about how tolerance is good. And Armstrong's wife and kids accurately call bullshit. You know what? I'm going to stand up for this scene. I actually really like this. Obviously, it's a terrible plan. But, and obviously, Joseph's story is not one he spent a lot of time on because it falls to flinders as soon as they start questioning it. But it makes sense. Joseph is naive. He has, doesn't have a lot of experience with the world because his memories are all gone. All he has is what he's read of Magneto and the brief amount of experience he has with those nuns and with the X-Men. But he's also had so much success with the Acolytes just by speaking impressively. So it makes sense to me that he would assume that would just carry over to anybody. Just that if he speaks confidently, people will just sort of nod and believe him. And that's not what happens at all here. I think it's actually kind of a decent metaphor for how not balanced Magneto was. Joseph is just starting to realize that. Like, what Magneto was good at was inspiring iffy people with confident villainy. He really wasn't good at changing other people's minds for the most part. That's why he usually just, you know, kills them. Joseph's trying to have it both ways. He's trying to have his cake and eat it too, and it's just not working. Well, speaking of Magneto's bad luck convincing people to follow their better natures, I'm remembering how much trouble he had with Avengers when he was actually a hero, with people showing up and being like, oh my god, it's Magneto, he's a villain, attack, and him being like, no, I'm just running the school. God damn it! Exactly, yeah. Like, that is an interesting aspect of the character, that every time he tries to get away from his villainous ways, like, no one will believe him. It doesn't work. Those powers of oration just fall flat. Speaking of powers of oration, this is the scene where Joseph yells so hard that he turns green with blonde hair. Yeah, just for one panel. And it's a weird panel. Like, his face is all twisted in that Mick Jaggery way. But what? Like, there aren't any characters in this comic with green skin and blonde hair. I, I don't understand what's supposed to be happening. Yeah, again, 
as rough as the pencils are on this comic, the inks and colors more than match them. Very strange. So, Joseph heads back to the Acolytes and tells them that no, he's not Magneto after all, which Fabian Cortez hilariously spins as a test of faith. He's like, no, no, that's exactly what Magneto would say if he were testing you. But I'm not the Messiah. He is the Messiah. It just keeps coming back to that. And meanwhile, government dudes, um, including Trask, head to the Armstrong's house to recap the whole death thing and assume Magneto was the one who showed up before. This issue calls Simon Trask Larry, but Larry Trask actually died in Avengers 104. That said, we haven't actually gotten the first name, I believe, of this lesser Trask yet. From what I understand— Well, you referred to him as Simon. Uh, I did, because I, I know he later will be revealed to be Simon, specifically in the Punisher story featuring Carl the Executioner that happens a little bit after this. That may have been a retcon to cover up this error here, saying like, no, 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 this guy's definitely named Simon. Don't worry, Larry's not back, we assure you. Uh, I, I'm not really sure, but, you know, we've seen this a lot in this uh, era of the 90s, the mid to late 90s. Like, there's a lot of inconsistency, a whole lot of cooks in the kitchen here, and things get contradictory sometimes. The Trasks do all kind of look alike. Is that racist? Oh, they're a family. Oh. And a shitty family, too. Like, they're all just sort of nondescript and brown-haired. One of them wears a pretty sweet vampire medallion to prevent his mutant powers from coming out into a racist memory. That would be the actual Larry Trask, yes? Uh, I believe so. Silver Age was strange, as we covered a couple episodes ago. Now, New Avalon has some kind of cloaking that prevents the humans from from seeing it, but the second it slips, they're gonna nuke it. And as the new acolytes arrive, Exodus prepares to fire on them, but he can't bring himself to do it just in case Joseph is really actually Magneto. So he lowers the barrier. And remember, that's the difference between Fabian Cortez and Exodus. Well, there are a lot of differences, but I would say the central difference is that Fabian Cortez doesn't care who's who. He's not a believer in anything. He just wants to manipulate people to become more powerful. Exodus is a true believer. Like, yes, he's manipulated the Acolytes to do some terrible things while Magneto was vegetative for a long time, but he really genuinely does believe that Magneto is the mutant messiah. And so I buy this. If there's any chance that Joseph is Magneto, however small that chance is, Exodus doesn't want to potentially screw up Magneto's return. Further highlighting that difference, Fabian proceeds to lie like a rug and tell Joseph that Magneto and Amelia Vote were in love so that Exodus, when he sees Joseph, you know, expressing affection for Amelia trying to play the role, immediately recognizes that Joseph is an imposter because, of course, Magneto and Amelia did not get along. Did you find this hilarious? Because I found this hilarious. I mean, I also felt terrible for Amelia just randomly getting kissed by Magneto. Like, that's not cool. But Fabian, what a weird way of screwing up Joseph's credibility. Why not just tell him Exodus loves, I don't know, peonies. Bring him some peonies and he'll like you. I can just see Joseph, you know, in the Magneto outfit, just declaiming boldly with Kirby crackle coming out of his eyes while holding a bouquet out to Exodus. Of peonies. It's funniest if it's peonies. They're just, they're so fluffy. They are. But still susceptible to magnetism, because it's the Marvel Universe and everything is. Exodus, however, is swayed. Not by peonies, but instead... By, again, 
Joseph's declamation as Exodus says, Surely no one but the true Magneto could speak with such force and authority. I don't know, it's probably just a filter that Magneto's producer made for him. But but still, he knows Joseph has to be an imposter, so they fight and they yell a lot, and oh my gosh, they yell so much. There are two pages that are basically just yelling with, like, little people in the background. Oh, this is positively Dragon Ball Z-esque, because there's all the yelling, but there's also how ridiculously over-the-top this fight is. Oh yeah, so Joseph gets knocked out of New Avalon so hard he falls down to the Earth's core. That happens. Goddamn! Uh, and then he comes back, yells at Fabian Cortez, and says that now he's really Magneto. Uh, yes, that was the only way he could protect himself from the heat of the Earth's core was to channel his inner supervillain, Magneto. Not Joseph, but Magneto. Like, this is nonsense, but it's such earnest, over-the-top nonsense that I have to love it. I think we've all got an inner Magneto to channel. Mm-hmm. Perhaps Magneto was inside all of us all along. We we know he was inside Professor Xavier as a little hate goblin. No. I hope I don't have Magneto's hate goblin in my head. That thing was creepy. No, no, you've got Magneto's declamation goblin. Way better. Declamation is sort of like decimation, but louder. Mm. And less misinterpreted as far as the one of every ten thing. You know, meaning shifts over time. English is a living language. It's true. And the monolith is a living monolith. And that... Well, not that, but the rest of it brings us to Magneto number four, Spectres, with mostly the same creative team, but also with some ink assists by Mark Hakey and Jim Sanders III, and lettering assists by Albert Deschain, or as he is sadly often called, A.D. So Joseph stands before Exodus and the Acolytes in full goddamn villain mode, looking majestic as hell, with some slightly confusing anatomy. And he fights Exodus to prove how powerful and merciless he is now. And I appreciate that Exodus thinks to himself, well, this fight may go badly, I might die, but if that's what it takes to convince Magneto to be Magneto again, I would happily lay down my life. Like, Exodus always, 100% of the time, has been portrayed as a true believer. That has never slipped. That's still the case, even in the current Krakoan era. He's just shifted what he believes in slightly. Now, the battle damages the psychic barrier enhancers of New Avalon, which reveals its location to the military. I thought that um, that Exodus lowered those barriers to let Joseph and company in. Uh, maybe he lowered them for just like a sec and then put them back up. And now they're uh, being completely damaged, so they're down for long enough for the military to launch their militariness. And our, our nameless general is is very excited um, about this because he's learned that New Avalon Rising will kill millions, and he figures they can probably get the whole U.S. military on this, or even the U.N. I, I, sorry, I love that the U.N. in Marvel is like a superior military force. Uh, yeah, they're, they're pretty impressive in the Marvel Universe. Well, well done, U.N. 616. I guess, if that's what you're looking for in a U.N., well, I mean, you know, if you're going up against, like, New Avalon or something, that, that could come in handy. But it doesn't, because Simon Trask shoots and kills the general, as he explains. I want New Avalon to take off. The resulting death, chaos, and destruction caused by its ascendance shall at last galvanize the non-mutant population into consolidating their forces and taking direct action. Jeez, it's like a mix of a false flag operation and apocalypse doctrine. 
While all of this is going on, Fabian Cortez, just to remind everyone that he is the absolute goddamn worst, tells the imprisoned Amelia Vote that, you know, once he takes over, she's going to be his concubine or else she's going to die. And the way he phrases this, God, I hate Fabian, and I love hating Fabian. Not as a queen, per se, but more like the first wife of the harem I intends to form once things quiet down. Thankfully, the other acolytes distract him, and Amelia punches him out. It's it's pretty satisfying. It is. But I should point out, Amelia Vote, as we'd seen her before, probably would have, like, flayed him way, way, way before this. Eh, you know, the important part is, he loses. Joseph tells Exodus in the meantime, in the midst of their charging up and sending Kamehameha beams at each other, Hey, you know what? We don't need to kill each other. We have a common enemy. Let us take out these terrible humans. And they go hard. There is nondescript 90s power stuff happening everywhere. And Amelia, now free, starts to worry that maybe, you know, if Joseph slips and if he actually kills some of these people instead of just blowing up their planes as they eject, maybe he'll go full Magneto for real. And she doesn't want that. And as a former girlfriend of Charles Xavier, she knows what to do. She fakes her own death. She does, and in fact, that snaps Joseph out of it. And instead of killing people, he magnetically force-ejects all the enemy pilots and then lets them go, after tearing their planes apart, of course, and diverting the various missiles into outer space, because Magneto slash Joseph, they are many things, but Subtle is not one of them. And that's how Amelia Vogt changed her codename to BSNP. <laughs> nice. And a deep cut. In the aftermath of this... Amelia picks up some of the photographs that Joseph had been looking through when he'd been going through Magneto's old stuff and passes one of them to Joseph. It is a picture of Magneto and Magda, his wife, before their daughter Anya died and everything in Magneto's life went to hell. And she explains what was going on here. Magneto and his wife were happy. They had this great daughter. Things were going really well until... An arsonist burns down the family's house, the daughter died, and Magneto, in his fury, used his powers to kill the angry mob of villagers. At that point, Magda left Magneto, and may or may not have given birth to Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch. It's complicated. That was kind of the turning point where everything went really bad. I mean, you know, aside from the whole being in a concentration camp when he was younger, which was also obviously very, very bad. But things had been looking up since then, until this point. And this is revelatory for Joseph. Magnus was a man desperately running from his pain and guilt. He tried to hide behind the grim mask of Magneto, and it destroyed him. I owe it to the man who was Magnus before his life was shattered by a tragic set of circumstances to be true to myself, to be Joseph, and not Magneto. I don't want to be Elfstar anymore. I want to be Debbie. Pretty much. And so, still in the guise of Magneto, because that's the only person the Acolytes will listen to, he says, hey, the church is within you. I mean, uh, New Avalon is within you, and that they should basically scatter into the world and just sort of ponder that. And it mostly works. Now, the one person who would probably not buy this, Exodus, still has his reasons for doing so. He is convinced that Magneto is somewhere inside Joseph, and maybe he just needs time to truly, like, come back into his own. Cortez, in the meantime, escapes because he's 
best at manipulating people and second best at escaping the consequences of his terrible actions. And Amelia Vote decides, you know what, I'm done with the Acolytes, especially since the Acolytes are scattering, but like, no, I'm extra done with them. I don't think I am ready to take a step far enough in the opposite direction to join the X-Men, though, so I'm just going to go off and do my own thing. And back at the X-Mansion, Joseph finds Rogue, who's apparently been waiting on the balcony for several weeks. Yeah, this is just sort of glossed over a little bit, but think about what that would be like to just sit on a goddamn balcony for, like, 20-something days hoping that your asshole kinda not really ex-boyfriend will show up uh, from his mission to see whether he's evil. Maybe she heard him approaching from really far off because, like, he flies really loudly, or he just yells while he's flying. Oh, yeah, and and just the uh, extremely slow— He just goes, vroom, vroom! No, I'll buy that. Again, Magneto is not subtle, and nor is Joseph. It is strange, though. Like, we know that Rogue is probably the X-Man with the closest connection to Magneto in a lot of ways. Like, they've uh, had—they've connected pretty hard, um, as it were. But again, this is just so over-the-top excessive, and it really turns Rogue into just an accessory to Joseph, which is not my favorite thing. Like, if she wanted to go off and find him, sure, but just waiting on a goddamn balcony for weeks? Sorry, I'm still just kind of enraptured with the idea of Magneto making airplane noises when he flies. I'm not the messiah. Okay, I'm the messiah. We do get an epilogue, which is the Armstrong family. You know, the family of the dead guy who went grumblingly off into the good night. She's been thinking about what happened with his confrontation with Joseph, a confrontation that ended with him being run off by all of the townspeople and revealing himself to actually be a mutant. And she realizes that she doesn't want to lose her young son the way she lost her husband and his brothers. And so she takes the toy gun away that he's been sleeping with and replaces it with a teddy bear, which it's a little on the nose, but you know, I, I feel great about that. It's it's sweet. I'll take it. If he's sleeping with a toy gun to feel safe, I feel like the bear will also serve that purpose because it, it could maul anyone who came after him. Well, that's a really good point. God, is that less violent? I don't know. Bears are great. They're versatile. It might do that. Might just forage. Who can say? So that's the Magneto miniseries from the late 90s. It's very strange. I do think it's a necessary bit of story. Like, yes, if Magneto is back in some form, then of course the Acolytes would reform and he would have to deal with that. What do you think of this as its own miniseries versus as a couple issues of of an X-Men ongoing? I think it should be its own miniseries. I think it's removed enough from the other characters that that works. Like, really, it's just about Joseph and the various Acolytes, and that's fine. Like, the only other characters we see are rogue just in the framing story at the very beginning and the end. But I feel like four issues may have been a little much. Like, I think this would have been a good two or three issue miniseries, or even if it were paced right, maybe an annual or an issue of X-Men Unlimited. Mm, Yeah, I could see that. Uh, That being said, definitely worth addressing. Joseph is a strange, strange character. I think he's a good concept. I think he is handled extremely unevenly. Sometimes I love the way he's handled. Other times he leaves me cold. This was, I don't know, somewhere in the middle for me. What about you, Jay? Again, I have a really hard time getting past the art. I think the writing is okay, but it's also a very bad comic. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And that's something we always should remember is like, 
It's easy in an audio format to just focus on the writing, but comics are inherently more than that. Like, that's why they're comics. And on that note, you've got questions. ChemAngel314 asks on Tumblr, I love your show and I love the X-Men cartoons and movies are cool, but I am struggling to find X-Men comics that don't leave me feeling depressed. Can you please recommend something, preferably featuring Wolverine, that won't leave me anxious and depressed? Thank you so much. Uh, well, I would probably recommend specifically avoiding the era of Uncanny X-Men leading up to House of X and Powers of Ten, because god damn. But as far as things that are actively happy, uh, I immediately go, especially with Wolverine, to Wolverine and the X-Men, specifically the Jason Aaron run, which is the first one, where Wolverine is running the Jean Grey school and wacky hijinks ensue. It is so much fun. Like, there's some serious stuff, there's some dark stuff, but overall, it's just delightful. If you want something less rooted in continuity, you might enjoy Wolverine First Class, which I recall is pretty fun. Oh, yeah. Uh, and for that matter, less Wolverine-y, but Spider-Man and the X-Men? Goofy as hell. Feels a lot like Wolverine and the X-Men? Not in a bad way. That's the miniseries where the infamous panel of Sauron saying, I don't want to cure cancer, I want to turn people into dinosaurs, comes from, and that's kind of the feel of the whole thing. Also not Wolverine-related, although he occasionally shows up, much of Excalibur, like the whole Chris Claremont Alan Davis run, the whole Alan Davis solo run, like those are dozens and dozens of issues that, again, they have serious stuff, but they will put a smile on your face continually. Highly recommended if you're looking for something like that. And again, not Wolverine, but I will always, always come back to X-Men Season 1 as a really, really good feel-good read. Very much so, yeah. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Am I correct in remembering that there is more than one nexus of reality in the Marvel Universe? The Emkron Crystal comes to mind, as does Man-Thing Swamp. Are there more? What about nexus beings? Do these various nexuses interact? Do they overlap in scope? Or is this just a case of many different writers playing with similar themes? You are correct. There are also more of them. Havoc is one. And there is no real connection. They're, they're just a bunch of writers calling different things by the same name. Uh, also, Otherworld, which has been a really big deal in the modern X era, like, that is kind of a nexus of all realities, or at least a nexus of the multiverse. Do they call it that specifically? I feel like the word nexus has been used at least occasionally for that, but it certainly functions as one. And, yeah, that's a fun thing in comics. Like, you'll have the one big thing, but... Marvel's been around for so many decades, of course you're going to get different versions of it. Like, think about all the different versions of the devil we have in the Marvel Universe. Or even the number of characters named Jubilee or Dazzler. Good point. I believe almost all of whom were created by Claremont. Claremont did like reusing names occasionally. He did, yeah. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, but once again we wanted to thank some of the folks who donated to Equality Florida to fight for queer and trans youth during our April donation drive. So, without further ado, sincere gratitude to... Adam Reck, Jindiana Jones, Jojo Seams and Andrew Isla... Pedro, Ryan Wise, Andrew and Linda Moxon, Ben Pick, Christopher Cardambicus, Jedzia Axelrod, Jeff O, Jesse Perlstein, John Ceruno, Nathan Hazelhorst, Rick Lewis, The Beff, Nick Tiller, Noam Z, Useless Information Man, Dan Pack, Forge Shield, Jana, Kate, Josephine, Dave Busing, Comic Book Herald, Jamie Lovett, Dave Tomaine, Dr. Holland, Tom R., Rich Kaminsky, Graham Woodyard, Ian Jenner, McArdle Booker, John Mazella, Paige, Uncanny Ryab, Ken Montero, Ben Martin, Devin Tui, Siri Volgaris, 
and Carrie Pruitt. And believe it or not, we will have even more next time. So if you didn't hear your name, keep listening. I mean, keep listening in general. We like making this show. We hope you like listening to it. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode alongside original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, Mystique once again attempts to assassinate an anti-mutant politician. This time unencumbered by time travelers. (laughs) 